You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. I'm Vicki Voison. I'm the host of today's show. We're recording on location at the NALA 40th Annual Convention, Institutes, and Exhibitions. NALA is the Association of Legal Assistants and Paralegals. This convention is being held in Tulsa, Oklahoma, home of NALA headquarters. And we're here to cover the important event, the highlights for you, and all the great things that are going on. Joining me now are Peter McGrath, Penny Bradshaw, Jeff Benyon, and Karen Sheely, who have been doing institutes this morning. These are various three-day institutes for attendees at this convention, uh, and there's been a lot of continuing legal education for paralegals. So I welcome all of you. I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with me. And just before we get started, I want to let the audience learn all about you, where you're from, what you do, and what your role is at convention. So, Peter, let's start with you. Great. Uh, my name is Peter McGrath. I'm a lawyer at Moore and Van Allen in Charlotte, North Carolina. I practice environmental law there, which I've done for about 30 years now, uh, and I'm leading the Environmental Law Institute here today. Okay. And then we have Penny Bradshaw. Penny, tell us about you. I'm an attorney with Constangie Brooks Smith & Profit in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I specialize in labor and employment law and immigration. Uh, today I'm leading a seminar on immigration law for paralegals, letting them know whether this is an area they might have an interest in or helping them to enhance their skills. Okay, thank you. And then we have Karen Sheely. Karen's on the uh, Institute about technology. Tell us about yourself, Karen. Thanks, Vicki. Um, I am from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a paralegal at the law firm of Gallagher and Kennedy. I work in litigation. Um, I specialize in um, legal technology as it relates to litigation and the practice of law. I also teach um, ethics and other classes at Phoenix College. Um, ABA-approved paralegal program, and I'm teaching with Jeff today or over the three-day period here in legal technology. Okay, and Jeff? Uh, my name is Jeff Benyon. I'm an attorney out of San Diego. I practice primarily in personal injury law, uh, products liability. Uh, like Karen, I also teach an ABA program uh, at UCSD in the paralegal program. Okay. Well, we're from all over the country. I like that. I like that. So, um, welcome to all of you. It's a really great event, and we'll be uh, going to be meeting a lot of interesting folks. And I understand you've had great turnouts for your institutes. So, Peter, what I'd like to know is what are the most common issues that are arising uh, in the business and real estate transactions as far as environmental law is concerned? Well, the most common uh, in business and real estate transactions right now are uh, avoiding liability under Superfund for pre-existing contamination of property that you are looking at acquiring or are acquiring. Uh, and structures and mechanisms to avoid that liability. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I noticed that you are focusing on the case of Burlington versus U.S. So tell our listeners about that case. Sure. That was a case that arose under the Federal Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act called CERCLA or Superfund, which is the law that makes 
owners of property responsible for contamination on their property. And Burlington Northern did a couple things. One is that it clarified the rules about what should be a common sense question about when you are throwing something away and it's trash or when you are selling something and it is a product. So it made clear the rules under which a particular activity will be categorized as one or the other. And second, it appears to have dramatically limited the instances in which liability under CERCLA would be joint and several. And so now a lot more cases under CERCLA are just going to be several liability rather than joint and several. Okay, but that's the case, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. All right. Now, Penny, you're covering this really hot topic of immigration law. You're talking about ethical and professional responsibilities of immigration law and how that may be a little bit different. So I'd like to hear about that because I'm really interested in ethics. Sure, sure. One of the things that we address is the role of the paralegal. Okay. Uh, because the paralegal is not to practice law, yet in immigration, paralegals, perhaps more so than in many practice areas, have a lot of client contact, actually prepare the cases for attorney review, and have a lot more contact in giving people information uh, that has possibly life-changing uh, impact on them as they're trying to perhaps get a green card and be able to stay in the United States. And so we talk a little bit about that. There's a problem in the field of immigration in that we have folks called notarios who are out there holding themselves out as lawyers or paralegals who are not authorized to practice law. Right. And so we make sure everybody knows exactly what is the role that they should play in each case. Okay, okay. And when these people come to you uh, to work on the immig their immigration issues, are they? Um, does it take a long time, or you know, what's this process? Is it a long one? Yeah, most of the types of applications that we do are for employers who are getting visas or green cards for their employees, but it can take a very long time uh, to get a benefit. For example, under the annual green card quota, an Indian professional has to wait 12 years to get a green card. 12 years. 12 years. That's almost a lifetime. <laughs> Someone could have grandchildren by then. Uh -huh. So, okay, thank you very much. Now, Jeff and, and Karen, you're covering technology. That, again, is another broad topic. So, Jeff, why is technology so important, and how can lawyers and also paralegals stay on the cutting edge of technology? It's always changing. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'd like to know... First of all, the ABA has stepped in and given us some rules about using technology. The, 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 yeah, sure. so the tell ABA me about that. stepped in and given some rules. Uh, states have created some of their own rules, adopted parts of the ABA rules. Uh, just for example, in California, we just had a formal uh, ethics opinion that was adopted on uh, electronic discovery and the storage of electronic information. And that's a rule that was about four years in the making. And technology is changing so rapidly that it, a rule that was started four years ago is not going to be 100% relevant to today. So one of the struggles that we have is constantly trying to keep people up to date with the with their changes in technology and the changes in the rules. The e-discovery rules are, are only about 10 years old in, uh, in the federal rules. And then some of the states adopted some more recent uh, state amendments, and so it's a relatively new area of practice, and there's not a lot of information out there, um, and not a lot of attorneys are savvy about it, 
But since technology is so prevalent in every aspect of what we do, uh, it's becoming a larger and larger uh, aspect in litigation. Okay. And I understand, and I believe this, <laughs> that uh, it, there's no excuse for not under. You can't say, oh, I didn't know about that right. anymore. Right. You, know, you, you, right. Have to, you have to keep up with it. Yeah, it's the bottom line is it's it's a digital world and it's getting more and more digital. Mm-hmm. And there are risks, there are benefits, and sure. all those things that we need to know. Well, Karen, as a paralegal, why uh, why is it so important to stay on top of this technology? Well, as a paralegal, of course, we you know we work hand in hand with our lawyers, and I find that many of the lawyers are not on top of technology like now they are required under some of the rules in Arizona. Arizona just changed their ethical rules in January of this year to adopt many of the changes that the ABA did in, in 2012. And so Arizona lawyers are now required to competently understand um, technology. And, you know, they don't all do that. So we can certainly be um, a big help in helping them do that. And it's funny because a lot of paralegals um, say, not so many nowadays, but they'll say, well, those are rules for lawyers, so why do they apply? And I've heard lawyers say that. Those are ethical rules for lawyers. You know, why do I care about my paralegal or my secretary? And I say, well, have you recently read Rule 5.3 that requires you to make sure that your non-licensed staff follow the same rules that you follow? And so it is, it does apply. What applies to the lawyers applies to us. It applies to the secretaries. It applies to our vendors. Um, And Arizona put a huge comment in their 5.3 when they adopted it about the application and the responsibility of attorneys to make sure that their staff is complying. Right. So very important. Right. Excuse me. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I think that coming to a convention like this where you learn about the new software, the new technology that you can take back to your office is also wonderful. I mean, I'm sure in your institute, you're getting that information across. I think that's terrific. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed becoming more and more prevalent is paralegals and attorneys are required to know a lot of these new technologies and software programs coming in to get a job. And so if they can learn these things, it's going to make them a lot more competitive and worth a lot more to their employers. Okay, good. Well, Penny, I'm wondering how a paralegal can uh, first learn about immigration law. I don't know a whole lot about it except for, you know, what I read and so forth. How can they learn about it and how can they be valuable to the attorney who's working in this area? Immigration is definitely a hands-on kind of learning experience. It's not something that you can get from books primarily, and that's because there's so much that's not written about what does the immigration service like to see in an application? What's the best way to put it together? What are some of the pitfalls that are out there that if you don't practice in the area, you wouldn't be aware of? Because with learning by experience, um, you can become more effective. Uh, Paralegals in the immigration field do many, many kinds of applications and uh, are able to help develop templates to make themselves more efficient, Uh, as was the the case with uh, use of software in 
you know, discovery litigation, more so in immigration now. Everything is mechanized. Uh, we communicate with clients um, and have them fill out electronic questionnaires, which then the paralegals can use to prepare the various cases. Okay. And so uh, I would say most of the time the best way to learn is simply by uh, getting a job in a firm that has that and learning from more senior people. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a, a really interesting area. And also an area where you were, you knew you were helping them right away. I mean, I'm sure they're like in a state when they come in and it's nice to hold their hand and get them through it. Well, exactly. It's, it's a field in which there, there are a lot of rewards. Uh, in my law firm, we sort of joke sometimes that the litigators don't get the flowers and the candy and the home-baked cookies that the immigration folks do get when somebody has a successful case. Oh, that's nice. That's one of the best rewards. Exactly. It is. Exactly. Okay, Peter, do you have tips for paralegals who are either want to get into the area of environmental law or who are already there and, and they want to show their value? Right. I, uh, I agree uh, with what everyone said so far. I, I always think of it as kind of like playing tennis. You know, you can read a book about playing tennis and you'll learn a little bit about playing tennis. But if you want to learn how to play tennis, you have to play tennis. And if you, I think if you really want to learn how to be environmental paralegal the only way to to learn that is to be to be it to, to do it and there there are several avenues you can take to get there you can work at a law firm you can work for an NGO a non-governmental organization like the Sierra Club or the Environmental Defense Fund you can work for a governmental agency i was surprised that i would say the majority and a pretty healthy majority of people at my at our institute this morning were in corporate legal departments so you can work for a corporation but i think it is absolutely a hands-on learning experience. You can't really learn it by going to class. You can't learn it by reading. You have to just go out and do it and figure out what the steps are and what the, the steps mean to helping people comply with environmental law. Okay. I, I do have a, another question that uh, just came to mind. Mm -hmm. Do you use a lot of checklists and things like that to oh, stay on track? Absolutely, you have to, I think. And uh, checklists are great. They're necessary so that you don't leave a step out that mm -hmm. you, you need to take. Uh, but what I, what I want to do this week, I think, is to have the items on the checklist be something other than just an item on the checklist so that when you're doing something that's on a checklist, you know why you're doing it. And so you know what that step accomplishes and what it doesn't accomplish. So you'll know if something else needs to be mm -hmm. done as well. But mm -hmm. I, I am a big believer in checklists. And do you include also who's doing the task or, or are they oh, just individually? I think typically in a, in a project, you're going to have both kind of an overall checklist mm -hmm. that assigns responsibility to people for the tasks and timelines and deadlines, as well as each individual person having their own checklist for what they need to do to do what I, their item gets checks off on the, on the overall checklist. Okay. I taught a class uh, with another paralegal, and we called it checklist therapy <laughs> because people get confused about how to set them up, mm -hmm. you know, how to update them. They right, have to be right. updated. You can't right. just rely on your first list. Uh, oh, so, right, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. The, the checklist, uh, like you were saying, the checklist that you might have used five years ago is not very helpful to you now. Right. Uh, yeah. Although... Again, technology, the technology for making up checklists <laughs> has <laughs> greatly improved, it seems right. like to me. You know, project management mm -hmm. software is really helpful, I think. Right, and it's easier to keep them updated right, and all right, of that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, Karen, when I 
talk to paralegals about using technology in the law firm, I always try to include the issue of security. How do you approach that? Yeah, security is really important nowadays. It's We just talked about that this morning, um, some of the issues and challenges in cybersecurity for law firms. There's a lot of different aspects of it, but from a paralegal standpoint, just understanding our place with security, making sure the things that we are using, we are not violating a confidentiality um, ethics rule by, like, for example, sending firm emails on an unsecured Wi-Fi from a coffee shop. There are actually, we looked at this morning, a couple of ethics opinions out there now that are saying lawyers better not be doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to be aware of what we're doing as well, helping, you know, our team be aware of security, both technology and, and non-technology security, but technology is a lot trickier. Mm-hmm. And most of the law firms, well, not most, but a lot of law firms are now tightening their security, which is good um, and needs to be done, but also has ramifications for ease of use of some of the programs and and taking longer to do things now and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, Jeff, now that technology allows us to be available 24-7, <laughs> how do you, does that affect the quality of life of legal professionals? Well, you know, it's interesting. I just, uh, I, I wrote an article about this recently, and not only does it affect the quality of life, uh, it, it also affects, to some extent, the quality of our work product, where uh, every minute or so we're getting emails, we're getting online requests, things that interrupt us throughout the day. On top of that, we do have quality of life issues where now a lot of associates at big law firms are expected to be available 24-7. And when they say 24-7, they do mean 24-7. Uh, so being able to be connected to your employer or being able to be connected to your clients uh, all the time is not always a very good idea. It's not always the most productive thing. Right, right. Well, Penny, when I talk about being available 24-7, I always say that you have to be very careful that you know your client wants you to be available, but you have to be careful in that you're using good judgment when you you don't just fire off a response to them. So how do you handle that? Do, you, do your clients try to contact you 24-7? Typically they do only if they need to be contacting me. I've had calls from people who were at uh, customs at the airport and okay. were trying to get into the United States and weren't sure if they were going to make it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sometimes ask clients to contact me on a weekend if they're applying for a visa at a port of entry and I want to make sure it was successful. So those are the calls I actually ask for. Um, but there are times when there are emergencies. My biggest challenge uh, during the day is not responding to email because I find I try to multitask too much and spend altogether too much time reading and responding to email. And so I make myself occasionally go into a conference room away from my laptop so that I can get the work done. I understand that. And, you know, people will say, don't check your email in the morning or check them all at once. It's just before lunchtime or something. I find that very difficult. And it does take time to respond. And then you know what else I'll do? I'll get an email and I've thought about it. And then I think I answered it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's in my head that Mm -hmm. I answered it, but I haven't. So um, we have to be 
careful that we're, you know, taking care of clients that exactly, way. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you know. Okay. So Peter, how do you ensure your quality of life when you have such a busy schedule? That's interesting. I, I echo what everyone said, and it does seem like environmental emergencies really seem to concentrate around the holidays for some reason, because, you know, Christmas, July 4th, something always going wrong. Maybe it's because people aren't at their plants, but I'm also really interested in the quality of work aspect of it. One of the big changes that I've seen in practicing law since I've started was when I first started, you know, a client would contact you and, and you'd expect, you'd be expected to have a response by the end of the week, say, you know, or by Monday or something like that. That was kind of, and you'd have time to think of your, what your response should be and, and to form a proper response. But now people want a response in 15 minutes, you know, because you can. And I, I really do wonder whether people's legal problems are getting kind of the attention that I feel uh, starting to sound like a cranky old man here, whether people's legal t- problems are getting the attention that they got 25 or 30 years ago. Right. Just because there's such a need for immediate response. Yeah. Right. Uh, I've always approached it as a uh, let them know you got the email and you'll answer it after you've given it enough thought. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But one thing that I do want to ask you about, Jeff, is, uh, you know, while the law firm is taking care to be secure, how you're dealing with clients who may not have a secure connection when they're emailing you. They may email you from their office computer, things like that. So how do you cover that with your clients? Sure. And that's another one of the evolving topics that's coming out in technology. Uh, and coupled with the ethics, we as attorneys, we have a duty to advise our clients not only in legal positions, but on these ethical issues as well as to whether they are making their data uh, vulnerable to attacks and whether they're putting personal information out there on the cloud. Everyone's got Dropbox these days. Um, Everyone's got email. Everyone's got data that's stored on servers somewhere. So as attorneys, it's definitely something that we have to be aware of. There's cell phones. There's watches. uh, Everything stores data, and we have to be constantly aware of that, where the sensitive information is, and let our clients know. Okay. Well, I thank all of you for being with me today. Uh, That's all the time we have for this special report from NALA's 40th Annual Convention. I would like to ask one more thing, though. If our listeners have questions for you, how could they get in touch with you? Jeff, tell us. Uh, If they go to my website, there's my email address there. And tell us about your website address. It's www.jbenyonlaw.com. It's J. B as in boy, E-N-N-I-O-N-L-A-W.com. Okay, and Karen? Uh, they could get in touch with me at my office email, karen.sheely at gknat.com. Okay, and you've got to spell Sheely for them. Oh, okay. And Karen is with an I, um, S-C-H-E-E-H-L-E. Okay, and Penny? I can be found at www.constangy.com. Okay, and Peter? At mvalaw.com, which is M as in mother, V as in Victor, A as in alpha, law.com. Okay. Thanks, all of you. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. And I'll be talking to you later. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.